You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. It's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a beautiful afternoon here um, in Balakinwood this today, and, and I am very happy about my guest who's going to be joining me in just a moment. I'm going to give a quick shout-out to um, a beautiful lady who's sitting in my studio. Her name is Wendy Dwyer, and she's just kind of sitting in and keeping me company to observe and uh, perhaps do a little work with uh, women to watch over the next couple of months. Um, if you're listening and you'd like to call in and, and join the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can dial 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And a quick mention as well, um, for you to check out our Instagram page, we're going to be running some uh, exciting contests over the next couple of weeks and giving some wonderful books away uh, that are written by some of our Women to Watch authors um, and some other goodies. So be sure to check out our Instagram at Women to Watch Media. So I'd like to welcome to the show um, our guest this afternoon. Her name is Ann Gordon. She's local to Philadelphia, which is always a treat. Ann is the Senior Vice President of Marketing, Media, and Communications for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I'm thrilled uh, that we won yesterday. It's going to make for an, a better show today. <laughs> welcome to the show, Ann. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here, and a good win goes a lot of ways for it, a lot of people. So. It does. It does, um, especially in my family. I'm going to, you know, full disclosure, we've been season ticket holders since way before even Vet Stadium. My my grandpa bought tickets to, I think it was Shy Field. Is that what it was called? 
Uh, you've got me on that one. Okay. It sounds like it's a ways ago. <laughs> a long, long, long time ago, and, and we've had our seats ever since. Once you, once you have them, you never give them up, right? That's exactly it. So, um, Anne, it's, it's really great to have you. I think um, we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics um, pertaining to the work that you do and, and your experience. Um, you've received quite a number of awards over the years working in media. Um, but I'd like to start out, as I always do, with your background and learn a bit, little bit more about who Anne Gordon was as a young girl growing up in Denver. And uh, I understand you were the oldest of six children. And you grew up in Denver, Colorado. Tell me about those years. Well, it wasn't only just the oldest of six children, but it's the oldest of a family of six with five boys. So I have five brothers. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah. So That's like being another mother. Well, pretty much exactly right. So that probably says about enough right there. But um, (laughs) uh, my father was blue collar, uh, worked at the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad. My mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom, as you uh, uh, as you can imagine, with all those kids. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a, a very um, Catholic family, sort of attending Catholic schools, all of the uh, all of the usual things in uh, Westminster, which was a small suburb uh, between Denver and Boulder. And, uh, you know, very much grew up as, a, as an outdoor girl um, in the West, right? So bike riders and in the mountains and camping and all of those sorts of things. First uh, kid in my family, first uh, child, I should say, in the extended family to attend and graduate uh, from college. And uh, I paid my own way. I had a first job at a uh, grocery store chain, which is called King Supers, and started out learning how to bag groceries and promoted to a clerk's job and then promoted to a produce clerk's job. And then I graduated uh, from college from the University of Denver um, because I earned a union wage, uh, which was a a good salary. I was able to uh, pay my own way to a private university, and uh, so that was a big relief to my parents because I think uh, there was really no option for them to help me. Mm -hmm. So very uh, small amount of student loans and able to do that. And uh, graduated and uh, was actually offered a job at the uh, grocery store as a head clerk, but... uh, said no because I knew that if I stayed there I'd never leave and it um, I wanted to sort of see the world in a different way and uh, started out on my adventure from there so and I didn't I knew you were the oldest of six but not uh, five brothers and you know there's a dynamic there that I'm sure um, you know put some pressure on you um, growing up to to kind of help out and and be a leader even in your family was that the case well, I, I think it's kind of impossible for that not to be the case. I just think there was a lot going on, and my mom needed help. And, uh, you know, I remember her saying, can't you please just push the baby up and down the block for a few minutes to give the poor woman some rest? And uh, much to my chagrin, I now realize that I probably ran the baby up and down the street and was back in 13 seconds, you know, not, <laughs> not enough time for her to get any uh, for her to get any rest. But, right. uh, you know, I have a good relationship with all of my brothers now, Um uh, you know, that they're grown men and have families of their own and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but I do think it's different. I think there's a lot of age uh, difference, and um, they all kind of hung together and football and, you know, catching animals in the woods and all of the sorts of things that boys do and um, having fun with it and uh, forts everywhere. Um, so it was always a little bit of a different dynamic. Now, I know that you're active yourself, and uh, were you a tomboy growing up? 
With oh, the, yes. I don't, was there, again, was there an option? Because right. I don't think it was clear in my family. Well, sometimes, sometimes the families of boys and, and the single girl, the, the girl becomes the princess. <laughs> so no, it's either one family. way or the other. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely a tomboy. And, uh, you know, I'm an avid bicyclist today and, um, you know, hiker and everything there. But uh, love the woods, love to be outside. And uh, all that just came with being a member of the family. And, um you know, my parents had, uh, my grandparents, I should say, had season tickets to the Denver Broncos, and uh, every now and again, some of the grandkids got to go. But we grew up with the Denver Broncos in our life, and also with the minor sports, the minor baseball team, the Bears at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always a, you know, a component of sports, um, track, running, tennis, um, all different sorts of things. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of sports. Okay. So tell me, you know, you, you graduated University of Denver with a, a Bachelor of Arts. What were your aspirations at that time? Well, I mean, when I was younger, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I kind of got to college and couldn't really quite figure out what that path was. Again, I didn't have a lot of help from family uh, who didn't really understand any of the sort of questions I was asking or how to navigate through a college education and find a course. Um, So I ended up with a degree, believe it or not, in speech pathology and audiology. And I knew (laughs) that I wasn't going to be happy in that area, but I also was very pragmatic and knew that I paid for this education myself. And I remember thinking, no one's going to ask me what my major is. Um, so kind of graduated, uh, with that degree and never really looked back and did anything with it. Um, and started my first job actually at a bank in a marketing department before I found journalism where I spent, uh, 25 years. Wow. That, you know, that's really difficult to pay your own way through college. You know, I don't know that we give enough credit to young people that are, that are doing that. Um, you know, the workload alone when you're in college and, of course, the pressure to also participate in, uh, you know, extracurricular and and all kinds of activities, that's a lot. Tell me, when you were doing that, you were going through that, and I'm um, assuming you had different part-time jobs, what would you say was one of the greatest lessons you learned at that time um, about responsibility um, and discipline? Well, it was probably those were the lessons, right? You yeah. you end up being responsible. You have a place to be. I mean, you talked about there being pressure for social obligations, but I mostly missed those social obligations, right? So I would take the hours um, so that I could continue to work uh, over an opportunity to go to a party or something like that because I didn't really have a choice. There was also a lot of pressure for those hours, and, um, you know, it was a different time, and my supervisor would flat out say that he would rather be giving these hours to a man because that man has a family or other things. Mm. And so, um, you know, I would have to press my case uh, with the union and say, I have more seniority, I deserve these hours, and then I had to be there for them. So, you know, it's a... There's, there's good and bad. I mean, uh, you know, you learn how to work. You learn how to commit yourself. You understand what responsibility is and, and the consequences. But, um, you know, it brought me a different kind of freedom at the end of college. It, it, you know, it brought me an opportunity to pursue another kind of a professional life. It brought me, um, bought me the opportunity to have freedom in terms of traveling and, and being able to see the world a little bit more. So all in all, I think uh, good lessons, but I've never forgotten that I've worked very steadily since I was 15. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that, I mean, you know, that alone will instill in you a work ethic that, you know, really carries with someone for the rest of their life. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell me, so when did you move to Philadelphia and what brought you here? I moved to Philadelphia in April of 1999, and I came uh, because I was recruited by the then editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And he had, uh, I had been working at the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer as a Sunday magazine editor, and he pretty much just flat out said, when there's a job, I want you to come, but I want you to take whatever editing job we have because, you know, I think, um, you know, we want you to assume some higher roles here in the newsroom, but first I need to get you in the door. I need to get you here. So I uh, came out. I really liked the Enquirer. I, I was thrilled to be given an opportunity to move over, and when the job offer came, it was to be the um, arts and entertainment editor, uh, and I took on that role even though I had never really overseen arts and entertainment work uh, before, but I had been a variety of other areas of specialty business, most particularly um, in my other journalistic roles, magazine writing, that sort of thing. And then within a year was promoted to a deputy managing editor, and then a year after that I became the managing editor of the organization. So, Anne, you, obviously you had made a name for yourself uh, prior to coming to Philadelphia. How did, that, how did the managing editor uh, find you? <laughs> um, I believe that some of the recruiting people had seen me uh, at uh, different events and that sort of thing and had – you know, they had a whole system of trying to find people and, and mentioned uh, my name. And uh, um, I, I believe he came out to visit me. I came out to visit them. We spent a lot of time talking on the phone about a variety of different topics. I mean, it, the whole thing was a whole year-long courtship. So, mm. um, you know, by that time, I think we knew each other pretty well and, and um, uh, understood that we could work well together and that, um, you know, this would be an exciting opportunity. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, you know, the the whole um, industry of newspapers today and media is, is in a completely different place than it was um, years yeah. ago when we were growing yep. up. Tell me what, what you see the future to be for, you know, the paper, newspapers, and, and how soon do you feel that we will be completely digital in our news? Well... You know, I think it's, first of all, to put that answer in some context. It's important to understand that when you think about newspapers, in some ways you're almost thinking about two businesses, right? You're thinking about content creation, you know, the journalists that go out and report, and then you're thinking about almost an old-school manufacturing business, right? Mm. Take take those words, put it onto paper, get with often union drivers, have it... Uh, uh, have it ready, have it distributed by independent contractors from there. I mean, it has a lot of elements of manufacturing in it. So you almost have these two businesses put together. And the evolution of uh, digital distribution systems and digital content um, that's created with crowdsourcing, aggregation, uh, community members, uh, and journalistic endeavors really changed um, really changed the, la- the landscape pretty dramatically. Um, I believe... Um, you know, it's it's not rocket science to look around and say that content is what matters. And, and so I believe heavily in creativity uh, to solve some of these problems, good journalism to, con- to solve these problems. But will it be printed on paper? Will it have the same um, heavy structure with it um, that uh, newspapers in the early 1990s, even into the 2000s had? No. 
it's just not a sustainable model anymore. Um, but I, um, you know, I worry about the future, particularly around the topic of local reporting, regional reporting. I think it's one thing to have national reporting, which I think fairly successfully moves forward on broad topics uh, of impact to politics, business, society in general. Mm -hmm. It's much harder to find out what's going on in your local neighborhood. It's mm. much harder to find out whether you have good leaders at a community level, at a state level. And that's the part where I, I see the model really lacking and where I see the future of newspapers or digital companies as they evolve really having to hold that ground and to, and to do it well. Um, I don't see that necessarily happening in a lot of ways. I see a lot of experiments uh, with small followings, but I don't see any real large-scale successful models. Hmm. Th that's interesting because I think, you know, when, when we had the opportunity to uh, view and, and learn and hear what's going on, you know, on a much broader scale, um, you know, with the Internet has come our ability to see and hear what's going on every day all around the world. Yep. It does. It moves you to a curiosity about places outside of your own community. But um, you've made such a good point about, you know, your, you know, down the street is as important as what's happening um, in faraway places. So what well, we'll it's important, I think, to remember that you can be globally connected and locally disconnected. Mm. Um, Yes. which I think is very much uh, a part of sort of the technological revolution that's around us. I mean, mm -hmm. we know something that's happening in far away, whether that's a war-related or a, uh, a Syrian refugee uh, crisis, um, anything like that. And sometimes we know that more intimately than we know what's happening in Narberth. Yeah, that's right. Um, and something interestingly, you know, talking about global efforts and um, connecting with people well outside our own um, neighborhoods, you are uh, an Eisenhower Fellow, and uh, in 2001, you, first I, I wanted to ask you, do you get selected to become a fellow? How does that come about? Well, you have to be nominated, so it's it's a fairly rigorous process, and uh, Someone nominates you, and that's what when you come to their attention. I didn't even know. I just got a call. You've been nominated uh, as an Eisenhower Fellow, and would you like to go through the process? And then you basically have to set up a project. What, what is it that you would like to be able to undertake and understand about things that are happening in the world? And just to take a step back, the Eisenhower Fellows were created as a gift when to Dwight Eisenhower when he left office. And at that time, it was funded to bring people from outside of the United States to the United States so they could learn about a particular field of practice, so whether that's politics or science or technology, uh, journalism, literature, whatever, come to the United States and see the best of the best in practice. And that went on for decades uh, until there was a realization that the United States people needed to travel around the world and understand what was happening in the rest of the world as well. So that fellowship changed its focus to, or I shouldn't say changed, but added its, uh, broadened its focus to include U.S. Uh, fellows uh, in the late 90s. So that's where this comes from, and my fellowship was actually in Scandinavia because uh, of my interest in media and obviously um, the coming changes in mobile. So I actually studied in Sweden with uh, Ericsson mm -hmm. and in um, Helsinki uh, in Finland uh, with Nokia. 
and basically was able to visit their labs, spend some time understanding that the future of media could well be the mobile phone, which at the time was five pounds and about 10 inches long. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe, but right. uh, there you go. Right. Well, tell me, I mean, what an experience that was. First of all, I think it's an incredible honor. Um, I wrote down the mission of the fellowship because I think it's a wonderful mission, and that is to first identify leaders in particular industries, but to empower and connect leaders who are committed to create a world more peaceful, prosperous, and just. That is, uh, you know, a noble cause and a wonderful mission. Tell me what your experience was uh, in Finland and and Sweden during that. Was it a a six- or eight-week That's right. Mine was actually, I think, six weeks, if I remember exactly. But... um, You know, it it was fantastic. You meet a lot of local people. You really understand the community. They connect you with other leaders. Um, It's it's people just to open up. Um, I was particularly fortunate because both in Scandinavia and in Finland, a lot of high-ranking government officials and technology officials were also Eisenhower Fellows who had traveled to the United States at various points during their career, uh, including politicians and others. So it was very welcoming. Uh, and I learned a great deal, but it's interesting because when I reflect back on it, I realize that it wasn't the particular thing that I learned, you know, that A connects to B. Mm-hmm. What it was was that I learned that I could be a leader. It gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. It put me in situations where I had to challenge myself. I had to say, well, you know, I actually think the following, and um, I had been at a managing uh, level before that and uh, hadn't really stepped up. This was prior to when I was a managing editor. And um, I'm not sure I thought of myself as a leader. And I think afterwards it gave me courage to at least try that, to see if I could be good at that. Mm. Would so you that's s- what I remember most about it. It's yeah. what I find to be the most central thing. Would you say that it, the nomination itself was a boost in your confidence or was it the experience <laughs> It was definitely the experience itself. I'm going to be a uh, an old-fashioned girl here and say, no, no, no. I had to go through it all and really believe it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, any you know, like I think any validation of our work is always a, you know, it's just kind of one more, uh, what do they say, one more notch in the armor that kind of, you know, someone is noticing and validating the work that you're doing and saying you're doing a good job. I think that's always good for confidence. No, I think that's true. And the man that nominated me was the man that had um, hired me. It was the editor of the uh, of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Oh, at the time. okay. So it, it was very validating. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you're still in touch with many of the fellows today. I, is there anyone yeah. in in uh, within that group that you would consider a mentor? A mentor? I think not so much as a mentor, but certainly we're all allies. And one of the things that's really great in the city of Philadelphia is it's a fairly robust class. And so all of us are in various uh, different positions of some degree of authority. And so it's a nice shortcut. Pick up the phone and reach each other. And I got a call. I got an email from a uh, Eisenhower fellow last night who's now with the city who's looking for some help on a certain project. And Boom, I popped back and said, yep, I'll forward it on to my people. I'm sure it's something we can do and help, right? So I think it's a shorthand that we all use um, out of respect for each other's roles, but able to say, I know such and such, I know this person, I know how they feel about X or Y. And uh, I think it's good for the city uh, to have a younger generation of people who have different kinds of relationships with each other built on, 
you know, some broader understandings of, you know, not only this community, but also sort of globally connected in a way that others have not been prior to this. Mm-hmm. What would you say is one of your own personal um, concerns with regard to media? You touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the show, but I'm wondering, you know, as um, as a fellow and being chosen to, you know, as a leader in this particular industry, are there some concerns that you have that you feel you can contribute to in, in an actionable way now with the role that you have uh, with the Eagles? Well, I always had this idea in my head that when I left a newsroom that it was at the time when we were having to reduce the staff. I think I left in 2007, so there had been a lot of considerable number of layoffs at the Philadelphia Inquirer and at other major newspapers across the country. And I realized that I was in a position, I was sort of crossing a river, right, and the, and the water from the river was coming up right around my shoulders. But that if I could just keep moving forward, that maybe I could be in a position for the next generation of journalists to step on my shoulders and make it to the shore in in what is very much a different kind of journalistic and uh, digitally enabled world. And so when I actually left the Inquirer, I actually went to private equity and worked for three years. And one of the goals there was to be able to help them acquire media companies. And I focus on content and content distribution. And I see that um, one of those that we, we basically – made four uh, investments. One of them is a complete dog, didn't work out. Uh, but the other three have been real models of change and interesting, um, bring interesting elements into the, into the picture. So I still believe very much about creativity in journalism. I believe, in, and not only just in journalism, but in terms of content creation. And in my role here, part of it is the content creation to tell the story of the Eagles. You know, what happens, who are the players, how is everything going, different ways to look at things and engage and inform um, fans is uh, part of uh, the work that I oversee here. So I bring that same level, I think, of, you know, of ethical demands. Uh, Let's be honest. Let's be straightforward. Let's tell the story well. Um, let's realize who we're working for here in terms of fans and why. So I think that ethic can be seen and appreciated outside of the newsroom. I think there are other content creators who are starting to understand that and to move forward and to create information. Does it put pressure on traditional journalists? Yes. But is that good for all of us ultimately? I think it is, um, if it's done well and and ethically. You know, that's a... um you have a tough role because you're, you know, in charge of three different areas, really. It's it's marketing, communications, and media, which, you know, really can be three separate entities. Um, I would love to know, this might be kind of a common question, but I would love to know what a typical day for you is like <laughs> and how you're, you know, kind of bouncing from one area to the other. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that I knitted my groups together. So, it's probably better to sort of understand the role a little bit more as sort of chief marketing officer because it's not only just our PR groups for business and football or, or our marketing groups, um, but it is also our um, all of our radio, television, digital, and social groups. The way we tell the game, so all of the video work and the game day experience for fans at the stadium, um, in addition to our community groups. So... Uh, all of our community relations work, um, you know, we have a foundation in addition to that. 
but we have a community relations arm within the organization. Um, all reports here, and also we have a emerging technology group which reports to me, and uh, we do a lot of the work on the app and start to understand some different areas that we want to be involved in. And I manage that with sort of a a nod to a newspaper. I mean, we start every morning at 8:45 with a daily meeting with all the directors, and everybody just talks about that day. What's on the agenda today? What are we doing? What's new? What does someone need to know? And without fail, someone goes, wait, whoa, I didn't know that. You're doing that? Oh, I'm doing this. And so we interact and we knit things together and we make sure Group A and Group B are all working in concert. And it took a long time for us to get to that space, but we're really there now, and it's an ethic uh, and a dynamic that they not only accept but really appreciate because I think it makes it easier for all of us um, if the right hand and the left hand knows what's doing, what they're doing. So in essence, it's all of the outward-facing actions of the eagles are connected. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do this is to make sure our internal conversations and our external conversations were aligned, that, you know, we were all really functioning well and able to sort of communicate and talk to folks and talk to fans and engage with fans, um, engage with our players, engage with the many constituencies that we have here with one voice. So that's really what we do. So you start start the morning off with some brainstorming, and then and then that takes you to what your to-do list is for the day. Yeah, pretty much. And then I have meetings where I meet. I have um, six direct reports. Uh, I spend an hour, an hour and a half, uh, depending on whatever's needed, with them every week, and we go over an agenda list. Um, a lot of times I actually share Google Docs with them. What about this project? What about that project? Where are we going so we can keep in touch? Mm-hmm. I also walk. I walk around, I stop, I talk to folks, what's going on, where are we about this, hey, I just heard this, did you guys know that? So, you know, I try to be very much present uh, and involved, even though I'm not doing the day-to-day in a, in a any of these cases. Right. Um, listen, and we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. When we come back, I'd love to talk to you about your views on the lack of coverage of women in sports. Kadok. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography, an automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus our same day readings mean same day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy on Sunday, October the 16th at 12 noon. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. This private all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house on Sunday, October the 16th at 12 noon, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. I'm Jocelyn Ewart. 
founding principal of Entrust Financial in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and it is my pleasure to share financial tips with you during my monthly segment on Women to Watch. I hope you are a regular listener like I am and that you are finding the personal finance tips I provide helpful. Some of the topics we have discussed so far this year are how to get organized, how to help your children learn good money habits, how to create that all-important travel budget, and what steps are needed as you prepare for retirement. Now I have truly exciting news for you, news you can share with your family and friends. As a veteran certified financial planner professional, I just published my first book, Balancing Act, Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. It is filled with inspiring real case studies to help you and other women move past fear, build confidence, and make the right decisions without financial concerns. Just go to Amazon.com to purchase your copy. And please, write a review for Balancing Act Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. I look forward to reading it. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB. Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I have with me this afternoon Ann Gordon. Uh, Ann is the Senior Vice President of Marketing, Media, and Communications for the Philadelphia Eagles, my favorite football team. I am a huge football fan, by the way. Um, you know, that's, it's, I would say that's Glad not always – yeah, I really am. I mean, ever since I, I was a kid, it was a big part of my growing up. So um, I just love it. And, um, you know, and I have a I actually have a guest coming on next spring. I wish I, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she she won a gold medal as a swimmer back in the 70s. And she's now running an organization that is really advocating for more coverage of women in sports. Um, you know, it's a topic that, that's talked about often. I would say, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons why we mostly see um, men's sports um, aired on network television. And historically, that's always been the case. But tell me what your views are on on women and the lack of coverage and, and maybe what you think we can do to get more people interested in following. Well, sure. I mean, first of all, I think there's a, a couple of basic facts to understand. I mean, thanks to Title IX, so millions more girls and women are playing sports than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, you know, according to some of the latest research here, and I'm just um, trying to recall it from memory here, there's actually less coverage today than there was back in 89. So it's kind of disguised by the fact that there's huge audiences for, for women's soccer. Uh, next runner-up, basketball, women's basketball, but, but not even in the same numbers at, and not consistently over time. And it really falls off uh, from there. And it's just, you know, there's clearly and obviously not parity in terms of the way men's sports are covered versus women's sports are covered. Um, so that that makes it hard. It makes it hard. It makes it hard to understand how to change that. And then when you look at the kinds of coverage, then it's it's really very different. Where a predominant amount of coverage on a male sport might be dedicated to athleticism, um, you might actually look at female athletes, and you begin to get into these storylines about juggling motherhood or juggling. Um, uh, you know, their professional careers with this, or it's a very different kind of storyline. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I find that to be really amazing, but not um, not unsurprising to, to a certain regard. I, I feel like I was guilty of it myself. I, I'm a 
of a biker, as we talked about before, and I, I love all of this, and I took some training with my husband uh, from a professional cyclist, and he asked me, you know, what my goals were, and I, I think I said something inane about, you know, to to stay in the size dress I was wearing, and he sort of laughed, and he said, you know what, I want to talk to Ann, the athlete, right, and I kind of fluffed it off and didn't think about it, and then the more I got into training and the more I learned about things, I realized that I didn't view myself as a being of an athletic mindset. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't, how was I going to, you know, how was I going to understand and appreciate this fully? So it was a real, a real awakening for me. It took a couple of years. So I don't think that's uncommon, though. I don't want to overly uh, state it, but I do think women have to also see themselves as having an athletic component in their lives um, that's good and um, not just something that they do on the side or something that happens, but that they can have an athletic mindset. And I think certainly younger generations and uh, girls that are more exposed to sports at a at a younger age, um, that that does happen, and, and so you start to see that. But then is there a path for them as professional athletes or even semi-professional athletes? And that's where it gets a lot more, um, uh, a lot harder to, uh, um, to really understand and to justify. Right. Or, yeah, is it, is it headed in that direction? I, I feel as if it is. Um, and, and, I, and, and I don't know the statistics on this either, but I do see more and more young women, I'm just looking, you know, raising my own children, becoming involved in athletics. And I think it's such a great, great activity for young women in particular, um, which teaches them all kinds of great um, aspects of self-esteem and confidence and, you know, competitiveness, you know, which are... And team. And building and team. teams and Absolutely. working together to achieve a goal and, and disappointment and how to handle loss and That's all of right. those sorts of things that we didn't necessarily... Uh, that women are not necessarily exposed to on a regular basis in a, in a different kind of com- uh, conversation That's with right. their peers. That's right, right, and, and very, very helpful, you know, in building those skills uh, in business. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're very directly related. Um, I read that you're a board member for the for the Bicycle Coalition. What what kind of work do you do with that? Well, actually, I just stepped down in June. I need to update my LinkedIn on that. But I have been a longtime board member, first with the Cadence Foundation, and we actually merged the Cadence Foundation and the Bicycle Coalition a couple of years ago, and then I stayed on uh, for a couple of years. But it is a fabulous uh, biking group and really um, uh, the largest in the country uh, membership-wise, um, which is astonishing. New York is uh, the next runner-up. But the city of Philadelphia is, you know, undergoing a bit of a biking revolution. And so the group advocates for bike lanes and better maintenance of all of that and a trail system that allows people to conduct their professional lives and their personal lives on a bike if they want to and and, uh, lots of safety concerns. Also exposing biking uh, to all different kinds of populations and kids so that, again, to the point we could have young women who are potential contenders for real professional bike racers and um, uh, understanding that. And, I, you know, I'm just a huge advocate of uh, that aspect of it. And the Bicycle Coalition is just an excellent group that really focuses heavily on that in the, uh, in the region and primarily in Philadelphia. So, Well, it's a great it's sport a that, yeah, I think it's a great sport and, and something that you can do at any age that's not as bad for your knees as running. <laughs> Everyone I know is running today except me, <laughs> making me look really, bad. Maybe I should pick up biking. Right, right. 
Um, Anne, I, re- I have to ask this question, and it might be predictable, but tell me what it's like to work in an industry that is mostly male-dominated. What is it like working with, you know, these these athletes and uh, and the executive team that is part of the um, Eagles organization? Well, I, you know, at first, um, you know, at first, you know, it, it was very, very different. I thought I worked in a male-dominated industry because I worked in newspapers, but I had no idea. Um, you know, the first day I came to work in heels and stepped out on the field and sunk in my heels. I never wore heels again. <laughs> uh, um, so it's it's a bunch of different sorts of learnings. I mean, one, I changed the way I communicate. Um, I would have thought that I was a fairly direct communicator, but now that I am predominantly speaking to to men uh, most of the most of the time, um, I change the way I talk. I'm I'm concise. I have a point of view. I lay it out, um, and that's very helpful to me. Um, there's not a lot of tolerance from going around and around, and people, especially here, want to see that you're competitive, that you're willing to, you know. Uh, push your point of view and have something to say about it, but they want to know you know your stuff because if you don't, they don't have time to listen to it. So I think, uh, you know, there's a degree of confidence and self-assuredness that you have to have when you work in the company of men almost exclusively, Um, and particularly in a competitive organization because this isn't just a regular workplace. This is an athletic organization. Mm -hmm. So there are values of competition and drive and um, teamwork that are uh, imbued imbued into the entire organization. So uh, you really have to understand that. Um, You know, I also had to change a little bit how I read situations where – I might have taken someone's challenge as potential conflict or found myself anxious about that. I now have to realize that's just another way to communicate, and I have to be able to, um, you know, I I don't take any offense. I just try to understand it and and move on. Um, You know, I I think those are probably just kind of the basics of it. I I think uh, a little bit is also what you said in terms of being able to juggle a lot of things on your plate and, uh, you know, be present for the things that matter to this organization and uh, um, also managing wins and losses, right? Uh, Because it's not just this organization. The entire town is upset when we lose. And um, (laughs) how do you manage that? You know, people have things to say, and and you, wherever you go, you're an Eagles employee. And uh, Oh, right. um, That must be interesting. When people find out, you know, what you do, um, I'm sure they have very strong opinions. They do. They have some advice to offer whatever coach coach is there. (laughs) (laughs) No one cares about what I do. They only care about what the coach does. So the support (laughs) put that in perspective. Well, it's interesting to me. You mentioned, you know, having to kind of change uh, a little bit the the way you communicate. And we talk on the show often about, you know, women as leaders or in leadership roles. Um, should we have to change the way we communicate in order to be successful, or can we be the women that we are and communicate the way we do and be successful? So it's interesting to me that you felt you needed to change your style a bit. Is that because, you know, obviously I, I, I don't think people can argue that men and women do communicate differently. And I guess if you're if you're working with a team of men and you want them to understand, they're they're very bottom line thinkers. You know, they they do want to kind yep. of get to the point. Um, is that have you? In other words, did you change your style without feeling as though you were um, 
changing yourself or your own leadership style? Oh, no, absolutely. Look, look, I'm still me. I, I still want to laugh and figure things out and solve problems with humor and, and, um, and those sorts of things. But mm-hmm. reality of it is, you know, I came in as almost a complete outsider, right? I came in completely from media, not necessarily a sports management background. Well, not even a sports management background. None of the standard credentials um, uh, that you would probably have or many people might have in this job, all related to having worked with the other teams, even if that was another league, they might have they might have been here. So I think there was a degree of acceptance there that maybe made me want to try to fit in a little bit more. But I think now there's an element of trust, but I've also learned to be more comfortable, and so my communication style adapted, but I don't feel like I changed who I was in any way. But I don't – I think quietly in my office to figure out where I'm at before I come out, right? And I'm like, no, let me think about this. I'm I'm here. This is where I stand. So um, – just because there's not a lot of time in these fast-moving organizations. You have a national brand, often an international attention, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you've got to be able to know where you stand, what are the key values, what are you going to communicate to your staff, and you have to be ready to go. Yeah. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of controversy in the lot. NFL, you know, yep. as a whole. In the NFL and in the team, and, you know, there's it's always something, as we say here. So it's it's a rare period of time when you have even a week that doesn't go by without something coming up. How do you, what is your philosophy to motivate your team? You know, you mentioned humor, which I think, you know, you can't be without, um, you know, to create levity in, in, in all kinds of situations. Is that something that you typically use um, to motivate yeah. your team? No question about it. I mean, we start the day with, I don't know, it, it could be that it's, you know, purple shirt, Wednesday or something goofy that we get started on in the morning. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm, my main components are as follows. I mean, A, there has to be trust. So that's probably the first thing we talked about, you know, that I will share things with you that are happening in the organization so you can be better per- informed and your people are ready to go. In return, there has to be trust, right? You have to, you have to know, I have to be able to know I can count on you and that we can move forward in a way that's healthy for the organization uh, and not uh, not destructive in any kind of way. Um, the second thing is collegiality. I mean, I really worked on pulling us together as a team, and that's where humor helps, right? And, and just some socialization, had folks over at my house before we started the season, all of those kinds of things where we can just relax a little bit and say we're in this together. Um, the other part of it is that I think you have to have real skill sets to bring to the table. You know, you have to be able to sit next to someone and help them in their, when they're struggling. And so I try to do that every now and again, just to sort of say, hey, what about this? Let's try that. Um, You know, uh, just try to make that an ethic to say we're all working here. No one's just sitting in an office, you know, tapping the table, waiting for the the time to go by. Uh, We're all working. And so I think that's important. It is very much a spirit of teamwork, Um, you know, and the values are that – you know, they are shared within the organization and shared at a very deep level in terms of, you know, doing things for the city, caring about how the city, you know, anticipates the team, caring that the team contributes to the community in meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, we talk about that. The community people are at the table in the morning talking about what they're doing. The PR people are talking about what they're doing. So everybody gets to hear it and share it, chew it over and offer advice and help. Do you spend time with the players? 
You know, less so. Certainly we interact with the players every day, but the players have a job to do. They are on the uh, on the practice field, and they're out, and they've got skill sets that they've got to develop and an agenda of their own. But we have a shared cafeteria, uh, and so for breakfast and for lunch, uh, you see players everywhere. They're in and out. We're all talking, laughing. They come in. They're talking to PR. They're talking to community relations people. Occasionally they wander up here and say hi. So Certainly it's just an aspect of our lives that coaches and players are part of our entire organization. Um, but they have a very clear agenda to be professional athletes and to be the best they can be on the field. Yeah. Well, here's something I was curious about. A lot of players are involved um, in community relations, you know, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. Do they seek you out in wanting to participate, or is that something that is kind of expected of them? Um you know what it they it uh, it's volunteer they have an opportunity to do that but that said they seek out our community community relations folks uh, all the time hey i'd like to be involved this is something that's meaningful to me my wow. in bo allen's case uh, you know his he's had um breast cancer sufferers in his family so it's a meaningful um uh, body of work that he'd like to contribute to mm-hmm. um so he's always front and center when helping some of the breast cancer survivors that we work with here and there are others, um, and um, they're out, and on Mondays on their day off, they're out in the community um, doing work and helping with our key partners. Yeah, I, I think that's really an important aspect of the organization to, because the young kids seeing you know, their favorite athletes doing more mm-hmm. than just playing the sport is always a, a great example. Yeah, that's correct. And I wanted to go back for a moment. I had a question for you. You had the opportunity to be a Pulitzer Prize juror. Um, back in 2003, um, mm-hmm. what? Tell me what it was you were looking for um, in the potential winners. Impact um, was one, but certainly the quality of work. So it wasn't just that it had to be a big flashy headline on on uh, you know a story that drove a news cycle, but it had to be done at a level that was far superior to anything else in the country. And um, trying to remember, but I think 2003 was the year that the Boston Globe won the Public Service Award for its work about the Catholic Church. Uh, The movie was just made about it, uh, Spotlight, and um, that was actually the the award that we recommended that year. And, um, you know, it was fascinating. You read so much. You can't imagine how much work is offered up, and you take a look at projects or everything about, you know, water supplies in small towns to uh, just a, a huge body of, of work on a variety of different topics. And then you have to make some tough choices uh, on, on who you want to recommend. And then the Pulitzer board itself makes the final decision. So it was a fascinating experience. I did it two years in a row, and uh, uh, it, it's great. It was wonderful. Is it something you hope to do again? No, I don't qualify. You have to be a working journalist. Oh, okay. And so oh. you have to have a, you know, you have to have your affiliation and that's something I could only have done as a managing editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And again, you are also nominated into that. Okay. Um and tell me what your if you know off the top of your head, what what your proudest professional moment is. <laughs> uh wow. I don't know. I I uh you know what, I, I guess there's a, it's a lot of things, and I, I would just sort of more roundly answer that question maybe than one specific incident as much as I am proudest personally 
of being able to tackle a variety of different things, to step up and become the managing editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer during a difficult time, to have an opportunity to move into private equity and to understand that and, and those lessons that I was able to take there, and then to come here and be able to tackle something entirely new. So I guess I would be proudest personally of reinvention. And uh, professionally, there's a lot of stories and different moments that I feel uh, very strongly about, you know, work that I encouraged, work that I participated in when I was a younger journalist um, that I think was, was meaningful work but um, hard to use as examples here. Um, and then the final third thing would be finding people that I could mentor and try to move forward and support through the years is something that I've also put a high value on. Are you um, a member to any of the women's networking groups that are um, local or national? I am not. Okay. I am not. It's just really people that I know and things that I've tried to do here on a much more local level. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many groups um, out there today supporting and, and um, providing resources for women that want to either, you know, better themselves professionally um, or for personal development. And I, I, I find it interesting that, you know, each group has a particular mission. I'll say, you know, what aspect of women's leadership are they going to uh, try to support? When you look at the big picture um, of, of women today and, and why it is so important, I think that we really try to help each other. Do you see an area that you find to be one of the main reasons that women struggle with stepping out, you know, uh, and leading wherever they are? You know, I, I don't know that I do or that I could identify that. I guess we're all a victim of our own experience, if you will, and certainly mine was about confidence. So maybe that's a message I always try to stress is, you know, have a little faith, step forward. You know, you're better than you think you are, that sort of thing. But you know, in broad scale, no, I, I don't know that I can answer that question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Can you can you talk about what one of your your own personal challenges is on a day to day, and and what you say to yourself to kind of move through it, and and perhaps it is around the topic of of confidence. Uh, you know, I think that's probably it. It's just. Um, not being afraid to ask questions, you know, I'm, I'm past that point now in my career, and I, I, that's the nice thing about being older, right? You can just sort of say, okay, I got it, I'm going to go ahead and ask questions. But I don't understand everything. Um, it's a complicated world. Um, I value interaction with, you know, my um, colleagues here, and I ask questions if I don't know, and I don't pretend that I do anymore. Explain that to me. How does that work? Why is that important? What about this? Um, and so I think just sort of, you know, having the courage to not claim that you know everything, right, mm. to, to be a real working colleague to someone to say, hey, you know X and I know Y, and maybe together we can make a, uh, a really good example of, of how to move forward. But, you know, this organization is a good example of that because you're, you know, you're really several or a, a couple of different businesses in one, you know, because you've got people who are putting a – uh, who are managing a very large-scale facility with the, with the stadium to a variety of different events, not just football games. Uh, you've got people like myself who are more focused on outward-facing branding and content and development of community and all of those sorts of issues. You have people who are in tickets and sales and merchandise and all of those um, uh, sorts of things. So everyone has a very 
particular skill set, and yet we all have to work together. So it's a really good reminder that asking questions and being collegial and trying to figure that out, um, you know, is a good way to make the world go around. Well, I think that's a great piece of advice, and um, particularly for women, because I think often we will hold in those kind of unsure moments so we don't appear to not know something. When when really, you know, saying, I don't understand, can you educate me on that or help me with that um, is a great way to be. It's, it's a much better philosophy to have. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah, and we just have a, a moment left. Can you just tell me um, a piece of advice? If, if one of the listeners is someone who's looking to um, perhaps move up in the media or marketing field, what, what lasting bit of advice could you leave for them that pertains to really how the media industry is working today? Well, I think whether you're talking about marketing or whether you're talking about media, depending on which side of the coin on, con- content is really what you need to understand. So, you know, if it's marketing, you need to understand that the way companies are telling their stories is classic storytelling. It's it's not dissimilar from the way um, certain journalists tell their stories for a different cause, for a different reason. So I think just understanding that content is king and understanding as many ways as someone coming up who could tell that story. Can you do video? Can you edit? Can you do podcasts? Can you be on the radio? What are some of the skill sets that you bring to the table? Can you write? Can you take photographs? What you know, All of these different sorts of things. So understanding that content is critical to almost every aspect of um, our business and our uh, societal um, conversations right now is, I think, uh, extremely important. Well, we're going to let you get back to your creative content <laughs> producing, and um, I thank you so much, Anne, for taking an hour out of your busy day to share some um, some great advice and your, your story. Very good. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Anne. Have a good day. And that is it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Uh, Please check out our website to find out who is coming on the show um, and to listen to any of the podcasts that you might have missed uh, for a live show. You can find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.